Good morning. The innkeeper, the high priest, and the king, they're all in position to be able to embrace and receive Jesus on the, the time of his birth, and they all missed it. They missed it for different reasons. Uh, we were going to start with the innkeeper, but I decided to start with the king, and that's what we'll look at today. We'll look at the, the king. Um, take your, your insert. Let's read. In the Bible, Matthew 2, 1 through 20, and we'll learn about Herod. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, 
weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Herod, also called Herod the Great, has been described as a madman who murdered his own family and a great many rabbis. He's also called the evil genius of the Judean nation. He was prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. He called the greatest builder in Jewish history. All those things, he was born in 73 B.C. in Idumea, the country just south of Israel. It was formerly known as Edom in the Bible. He was granted the title King of Judea by the Roman Senate in 37 B.C. Because Rome had conquered Israel, he was a vassal of the Roman Empire, and he served at their pleasure. So he was not free to do whatever he wanted. He was on a leash, but fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the perspective, he had cultivated the favor of the Roman Empire. Uh, he won the trust of the first Roman emperor, Augustus, and continued to rule his people as he saw fit. They heard reports about him. But he would do his due diligence to give the Romans what they want so they didn't investigate his crimes too carefully. He became king in 37 B.C. and died in 4 B.C. His kingdom was divided by the Romans among his three sons. One of them, Herod Antipas, was one of the conspirators in the trial and the execution of Jesus. Now, if you are a detective, you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. You said Herod became king at what time? 37 B.C. You said he died when? 4 B.C. And the angel told Joseph to take Jesus because Herod was going to get him? Does that mean that Jesus wasn't born on Christmas Day? And indeed it does. When Jesus was born, God didn't hand out new calendars. You know the way that works. We're, we're toward the end of the year, and so if you have a calendar and you have a day planner or whatever you do, you probably have already gotten your new refills for the year. And so you got a new calendar. When Jesus was born... God didn't send out angels and pluck up everybody's calendars. Okay, now we've gone from B.C. to A.D. In fact, um, dividing history into B.C. A.D. was devised in 525 A.D. And it really didn't go into full practice until 800. Um, at any rate, Jesus was born while Herod was still alive, sometime probably between 5 and 4 B.C. I was at Yogi Bear Campground. Don't go too far with that. I was on a summer beach project, and my job for the summer was to be a kind of a, a guard 
as people came in and out of the facility at Yogi Bear Campground, yes, they did want me to wear the hat. You know, the Ranger Smith hat with the little things in it. And no, I did not. I refused. Um, uh, there was, I was there stationed, and what I did it was kind of interesting. It was uh, while I was in college, and I was just seated at this post, and I read a bunch of Christian stuff that summer. It was a really important summer for me. But it was an, it had an interesting experience where uh, this young woman walked up to me and, and told me, you know, in a conversation, she was coming into the park, you know, Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. And I was taken aback. I hadn't known much about the Bible and not born on Christmas. What do you mean? And, and I was kind of shook by that. We had a discussion. She told me about this, that, and the other. I don't remember the discussion. And, and then I saw her getting into a car and her dad and her mom. And she was in the back seat. She was driving away. And I saw YHWH on the back, on the window. That's a weird thing. YHWH, what does that stand for? I didn't know. So I just let that go. And um, she came back following a couple of days. And and then I, I asked a question when we were discussing. She was telling me about this, that, and the other, and things that were kind of trivial. I said, you know what? I got a question. Do you believe Jesus was God? That question kind of came out of nowhere. And then she started to hem and haw and say, well, I said, you don't believe Jesus is God, do you? And then I put the YHWH together. Are you Jehovah's Witness? Well, yeah, that's up. And at the time, I knew a little bit about that. But why I shared that is um, sometimes little minutiae, minor things were used to disrupt faith. Jesus wasn't born on Christmas, and he doesn't need to be born on Christmas. What's important, that he needed to be born, and that he was God, and is God, and that he died, but didn't stay dead, that he rose out of the cave in Israel, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the king of the universe. That's what's important, that he still lives. During his reign, though, um, as we think about Herod and um, him being alive at the time Jesus was born, Herod was guilty of many brutal acts, including the killing of his wife and two of his sons. The ruthless, cold-blooded massacre of the in innocents then in Bethlehem is not surprising to us. Herod would do anything to protect his reign. What is surprising is that no other contemporary source refers to this massacre. You'd figure a massacre like that would get some press. Some individuals should talk about it, but they don't. And um, some biographers believe that, well, it's because it didn't happen. I don't believe that. Which was interesting. One reason put forward was that Bethlehem was a very small village and that the number of male children that would have been between the ages appropriate could have numbered as few as 20. So it was not something, and when you see the movies, it's 
it seems to be a larger city. If you've ever seen any movie, Bible movies, and the, the soldiers are going in, and there's a bunch of soldiers and a bunch of kids, and, a, and it might not have been that many. It, Bethlehem was a fairly small place. But at any rate, he did slaughter the innocents in order to swipe at Jesus. And so the, the question is, how could he be king of the Jews and do such a thing? Herod was raised as a Jew, but he was from Idumea, which is formerly known as Edom. Israel conquered Idumea in 140 to 130 B.C. The conqueror, John Hyrcanus, required all Idumeans either become Jews or leave. That's what he, he didn't give them any room. So it's not like, well, if you want to become Jews, come on in. They were forced to convert. So any Idumeans that were able to remain in Idumea at the time had to undergo circumcision, and they had their faith forced upon them. As we try to look at Herod, and that gives us a clue into why he missed Christmas, it's not possible to force faith on someone and have that belief be heart deep, isn't it? Especially when that faith is forced in hostile ways. Now, unfortunately, in this state, we have evidence of that. If you go West River to Indian reservations and hear stories about how they were evangelized, how Native Americans were evangelized, and sometimes they were good, well-meaning people. Other times they weren't so much, with no respect for Native American customs, forcing little kids to give up their language and learn English. And it's, at any rate, we understand what happens when conversion is forced, and that gives us a little bit of a clue as to why Herod did the things he did. He generally respected Jewish observances in his public life, but despite some of his attempts to kind of go along with things, he, he did some things that indicated that he wasn't so wholehearted, uh, introduced a lot of foreign forms of entertainment, put an eagle over the entrance to the temple. And if there's one thing you don't do, you don't mess around with the temple. He put an eagle over there, and, and what he tried to do is try to be more even, you know, so to take care of the Jews, to take care of the non-Jews. At any rate, as we kind of step back from Herod and try to take a look at this guy, as we're trying to figure out how did he miss it. His strengths, he worked well with the Roman conquerors. He was cultivated good relationships with them. He knew how to get things done. He was a very skilled politician. He was an incredible builder. What he built, he really was the greatest builder in Jewish history. Built up Caesarea, and he built up the temple. Um, he strengthened Israel's position in the ancient world. It became a hub for commerce and trading. Those were his strengths, his weaknesses. He was brutal. Killed his father-in-law, several of his ten wives, and two of his sons. He kept order in Israel, but used secret police and tyrannical rules. So he had secret police that went out into the plainclothes policemen. Hey, what do you think of Herod? And they tried to cultivate a relationship. And then if you said something 
about him that was less than appreciative, you would disappear. He was like that. He um, ignored the laws of God to suit himself. He imposed heavy taxes on the Jews. Again, he was a lavish spender on, on buildings and entertainment. And, and you know who ended up bearing the burden for his lavish lifestyle, the taxation that for, on the back of the Jews when he died. They were glad to see him go. But again, our question becomes, why did he miss Christmas? How could he miss Jesus? There are some indications as we look at what he was like and how he converted. And um, A couple of things I want us to look at. The difference between worldly authority and, and heavenly authority. And I think that gives us a clue, maybe a deeper reason. Um, look what it says in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. John and James had just made enemies of the rest of the disciples. So when Jesus was describing how he was going to die, they were the first to raise their hand. Um, Jesus, we want for you to do something for us. And Jesus said, what is it? He didn't promise he would do that. When you go into your kingdoms, we want to be seated, one on your right and one on your left. And then they looked at the other ten and said, gotcha. <laughs> and uh, that was not a really good thing. And they uh, they disputed among themselves, and they were angry. Here's what Jesus, he called them together. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to go to talk about what it means to exercise authority, but I cannot miss the opportunity to do a little bit of a sidebar. Ransom. Ransom. The word literally means, it's the word that comes from a combination of two Greek words. Luo, which means to release or untie. That's what luo means. And when you wanted to say the means by which the action of a verb is accomplished, you put the suffix tron on there. So lutron, the means by which someone is released. That's what the word means. That's what the word means. And as such, it's a great translation. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the means by which we might, many might be released. When it says ransom, ransom is the way somebody is released. So, if you are slaves and Randy is the slave master, what I could do to release you if I find out how much you're worth, each one of you, I could approach Randy, take the money, give him the money, the ransom money, and you would go free. And so the question is, is that what Jesus did? Is his death a ransom? And many believe so. It makes sense. And again, many in this, it might be the way, yeah, that many here might believe. I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm not saying you can't believe it. But I'm saying, let me tell you what I think and why. 
Um, it's hard for me to see the cross as a place where God bleeds his son because the wages of sin is death. So God kills his son so that the son could bleed and that could become the price to release people. And again, that's what I learned growing up. You know, that's, God punishes his son at the cross because the wages of sin is death. And, and if God's going to free people, he needs to bleed his son so that blood could be used to free people. And my question becomes, who does he give the blood to? Who does he pay off? Do you understand what I mean? Does he, who does God need to pay? Does he bleed his son with one hand and put the blood in the other hand? That doesn't make sense. Nobody is bigger than God. And when you think about how God redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt, who did God pay off? Who did he pay off? I mean, who did he give the money to? What did he pay to Pharaoh? He didn't pay anything to Pharaoh. You know what God does when he releases? He does so with power and conquest. I think what happens at the cross is that it goes and God takes one lot of it. Let me give you an illustration. I've done this before, but again, forgive me the sidebars. No, like you can stop me. I mean, because I'm going to, I'm going to say whatever I want. So here we go. I'm going to do the sidebar again. You've heard this. But okay, so here we go. So here we go. We got Brett. Brett's in a prison in Iraq. Okay? He's, he's broken Islamic law and he's going to die. So I, I learned about this and, and I end up trying to negotiate this. And what I end up doing, I contact the the officials and say, you know what? Um, I want to rescue Brett. I want to release him from what he's going to go through. And they say, okay, what do you have in mind? Um, how about if I take his place? So you kill me and Brett goes free. And let's say they decide, okay, we're going to do that. So Brett's able to go free. I've taken his place. Is that what happens at the cross? There's another way to do it. Let's say I learn that Brett is there, and so I get a contingent of individuals. And we go in and overthrow the government, take Islamic law. Tear it up. Does Brett go free? Because the law has been changed. I've gone from Islamic law imposed democracy, and Brett goes free not because I fulfilled their law, but because I changed it. You know what happens at the cross? The old covenant that said, you're blessed if you obey and cursed if you disobey. Gets repealed. Did Jesus say, this is the what covenant in my blood? What? Does that mean he repealed the old and installed the new? Or do both of them apply? 
Can both of them apply? They cannot. You cannot have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in operation at the same time. It's like having the Constitution and the Quran in the American government. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. So if on the cross then Jesus removes the Old Covenant and replaces it with the New Covenant, in the Old Covenant, if you disobey one of the commandments, you are cursed. Just one. And you know in the New Covenant what it says? I will be Helios to your transgressions. Helios means non-reactive. I will not take your sin into account. That's how you've been liberated. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. He changes the law. And the act of his son dying on the cross is not God punishing his son. It's the father and the son collaborating to remove one law and replace it with another. Okay. So even if you didn't want to listen to that, you had to. And so, okay. Exercise authority. It says that's what Gentiles do. They exercise authority. To, to do that really literally means to misuse authority. In the Bible, the word for authority is the word from a root that says you can do what you want. If you have authority, you have the freedom of action. Who's going to oppose you? You have authority. You can do what you choose to do. That's what's behind the picture of authority. And so to exercise authority, what that means is a misuse of authority. You have the position to be able to do what you want, but you take that freedom and you misuse it. That's the image. And what Jesus says, the Gentiles lord it over them. They misuse their authority. Um, they misuse the the authority of their office. And God, and I don't know how this works, but God has a standard, a more rigid standard for those who serve in leadership, like of a country. Because the understanding is people, by and large, are going to cater to the will of a leader. Naturally so. When the leader misleads the people, that's a bad thing. That's why Jesus had so many issues with the Pharisees. Because in Israel, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they weren't just ministers. That was a theocracy. And the priests were senators. The, there's no separation between church and state in Israel. None at, at that time. At that time, though the police were at the beck and call of the priests. So if I wanted to get you in church or to do something, I would ring up Sergeant O'Shaughnessy and, and say, okay, go pick up and dulge. I don't see her where she needs to be this man. So they'd go grab in. And so that's the, that's the way it worked. That's, that's, that's how it worked. And uh, that's why Jesus had such an issue with leadership. Because the, as the shepherds lead the sheep, the sheep go into a bad place. And Jesus loves sheep. And he doesn't appreciate shepherds who mislead sheep. In fact, I've told you this before. The difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd? Difference between them? A bad 
shepherd talks about bad sheep. But a good shepherd talks about bad shepherds. Bad shepherds. Sheep will follow a shepherd. And so look what it says in Micah chapter 7. It's a not a good time in Israel. The godly have been swept from the land, it says. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. And look what it says. It turns to leadership now. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you, now is the time of their confusion. What it's the image is God puts somebody in place to give leadership. These individuals misuse their leadership, misuse their authority. And what it says, I'm watching. I care about these people. And I'm watching what you're doing for a leader to be in place to misuse their authority, to meet their own desires is something that God notices. And that's what Jesus says the Gentile lords tend to do, use authority for their own purposes. And that's not a good thing. There's three different kinds of rules. There's the iron rule, the silver rule, and the golden rule. It's in your worship folder. The iron rule, like Julius Caesar, veni vidi vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. The silver rule, Rabbi Hillel, a famous rabbi at the time, before Christ existed, many of his writings were memorized by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. What you don't want done to you, don't do to somebody else. That's the silver rule. And the golden rule comes from the ultimate sovereign king of the universe said this, do to others as you would have them do to you. You think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one? The guy's walking the road and a robber comes and beats him up. That's an indication of the iron rule. I came, I saw, I kicked his butt. I did what I could to him because I could overpower him. And I had the ability to take his things. And I did so. I left them bleeding in a mess. That's the iron rule. Then the Levites and the priests came by. And they didn't run over and kick him, because that would have been hateful. But neither did they help him, because they weren't constrained to do that. All they had to do is not harm him anymore. And they would be keeping the silver rule, which is what is hateful to you. Don't do to somebody else. They didn't make fun of him. They just avoided him. That's somebody who's functioning by the silver rule. The Good Samaritan is the one who functions according to the golden rule. If I was lying in that place, what would I want someone to do for me? I would want them to come over and bandage my wounds, put oil on my wounds, put them on my donkey, take me to an inn, pay my services, That's Jesus. That's how God functions. 
God does not function according to the iron rule. It would be bad news if he did. But he does not. He does not function according to the silver rule. He functions according to the golden rule. The reason why I say that, Herod operated by the iron rule. And you know what I think his issue was? He assumed that Jesus would operate the same way. That Jesus would be in it for himself. Of course, we don't think anything like that. We don't think, I can't give my life to God because of what he might demand from me, what he would want to take from me, how he would want to abuse his authority. None of you understand that kind of thing. I'm the only one that understands that type of thinking. We look at the way leaders function, and we forget to really look at what God is like. Um, Herod equated worldly authority with heavenly authority. Heavenly authority is much different, much different. Literally, no joke, as relates to you, really. God is not in it for himself with respect to you. He really isn't. He's not looking to exert influence over you to get you to do things that you don't want to do. He doesn't need your money. Contrary to what you've heard, he'll use it. He's not on his last dime. He hasn't run out of people to order around. That's not why he wants to be involved with you. It says in Ephesians, in order that the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to you in Christ Jesus. God's filthy rich and loaded with power. He doesn't need anything from us except he wants to, for some reason, share his life with us and a life that's eternal. Your life is safe in his hands. I know we look around and things are scary. I'll tell you what. Every single one of you, maintaining your faith in Christ, a hundred years from now, we're not going to be afraid anymore. We're going to see him as he is. And what we're going to say is, this is always wanted. I wanted to climb up next to somebody whose goodness and power is so good and so powerful that I can't think. Look at Travis hundred years from now. Hey, Travis, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to be afraid. Try to be nervous. Try to be frightened about something. And Travis says, I can't. I can't. Look at him. The love and power there, I, I, how, I, I, I see, can you be afraid? I can't be afraid. None of us is. God can be possible. But on this side, we tend to look at God and mush those who took care of us and mush that onto God and make him like fathers and mothers who tried the best they can. He's much better than your father or your mother, my father or my mother. Any president, any king, he's more powerful than anybody who works or lives or obeys ISIS, or the U.S. government, or the Israeli government, anybody. Um, heavenly authority, Jesus talked about it. It was just before the Passover feast, John 13. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, some of the 
Simon to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Having loved though his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Heavenly authority, get this, and just isolate it. It functions according to love. Having loved those who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. See, that's something Herod couldn't see. He didn't love the Jewish people. He didn't. He did. He might respected them, but he didn't love them. I'm not sure President Obama loves the American people. He doesn't know me. I don't disrespect him. Any leader, anyone that you would cite, do they love? Maybe. Does God? He really does. He operates by the golden rule. That's the way Jesus, that's what he shows us. Having loved his own were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. God does, is not plagued by selfish motives. And the love of God is what makes his authority less threatening. It really does. He really does want what's best for you. That's how he functions. I remember, I was thinking, I told you this once before, I thought of, did this study on the love of God. And then I think of the love of God and being somewhat, some of us are more self-condemning. That's my issue. So I'm thinking, oh, you're so loving, but I'm so unloving. You know, and so I wanted to try. I did this thing. I'm trying to think of the love of God. And so I was thinking of all these nice verses about the love of God. But I'm so unloving. And then what hit me, keep your face up. So I, you're so loving. I'm sorry. No, don't do that. You're so loving. No, no, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't. Then it dawned on me. Wait a minute. It's easy for you to love. It might be hard for me to love, but not you. You love without breaking a sweat. God loves you without breaking a sweat. Get this. He demonstrated his own love for you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. What that tells me, your sin does not decrease God's love for you. Would you agree with me? That's that, ooh, that seems that seems troublesome. God demonstrates his own love toward you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died. If God loved you while you were a sinner, will he hate you or love you less when you sin? The answer is the answer is it can't be. It can't be. Do a study of the love of God. I think Herod had a hard time believing that God loved him. I would imagine that. And when we have a hard time believing God loves us, we tend to act in self-protective ways. We preserve our power. We make sure nobody does anything that threatens our position because we need to be loved to be secure. When's the last time you did a study on the love of God? Maybe it's time. Find the passage in the Bible that talks about his love. Write them down. Write down what they say. What does it mean that God loves you? And you know what you might do? Here's a prayer. Some of you are like, don't tell me what to pray. I'm going to give you a very simple prayer. God, I want you to tell me that you love me in language I can understand. What about that? Could you pray that? Could you pray that? Of course you could. God, I have a hard time connecting with your love. 
I feel like you love me and I feel like you don't. People that have been over me, I have sensed that they weren't all loving all the time and I have an issue with you. By the way, some of you if, you, if you became that honest with God, it would be a an important point in your life. God already knows it. And some of you would be very freeing for you to say, God, you know what? I guess I think I should love you, but I don't. I understand that. And you know what you could say? I guess in order for me to love you, I've got to know you love me. So God, here's my prayer. You tell me you love me in language I can understand. Could you pray that? I'm going to give you a moment right now. You talk to him. He loves you. And when you understand it and believe it, it will change you. You talk to him. Let me just give you a minute quiet by yourself. Don't talk out loud. Talk to him. By the way, that's a prayer that God's going to answer a hundred out of every hundred times you pray it. God, help me to know your love for me. Again, it takes time. It takes God six months to make a squash and a hundred years to be an oak tree. What do you want your love of your understanding to be like, a squash or an oak tree? It takes time. Be patient. Keep asking. Um, Jesus knew that the Father, it says, had put all things under his power. He had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Do you know why Jesus was able to serve people? It gives us the answer here. He knew he, he knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. You know what he knew? He knew that when he was going to his grave, that wasn't the end of the journey. It was just the beginning. Do you know what death is like? Death is like going through the birth canal. Squeezing. Painful. Frightening. And you feel like the end is coming until you move through the canal. And you understand. This isn't an end. This is a beginning. person that I always wanted to be with, the leader who I always wanted to lead me, one at whose feet I can lay everything without wanting to take it back. Modern scholars, we know Herod suffered throughout his lifetime from depression and paranoia. He was so concerned. Listen to this. Talk about a guy who's preoccupied with death. He was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho. So he said, when I die, I want all you guys to come to Jericho. Okay? Okay, we got this right? So I die, what do you do? Come to Jericho. And you know what he, you know what he had done? He had assigned people to kill everyone in the came so that there would be a lot of crying when he died. <laughs> Fortunately, 
his son and daughter didn't follow through on this wish and this bequest. Uh, come on up, worship team. Devin, come on up. Uh, Herod missed Christmas because he operated by the iron rule and assumed God did as well because he was eternally insecure. To the degree we believe that we are loved by God and included in his eternal purposes, we will serve others and become like Christ. Let me pray first, Father. Thank you for clearly communicating to us through your word in the person of your son, the word, the living word, the becoming flesh and blood walking around on this planet word. And telling us about what moves you, what motivates you, what the rule that you live by, the golden rule, the rule of love. I guess I ask that you'd help us see that more clearly so that we could offer ourselves to you in greater degrees of security. All of us deal with insecurity. Show us what you like so that we would live our lives for you, understanding of where we're going. And the understanding of where we're going, allowing us to serve, to descend into greatness by serving people. In Jesus' name, amen.